Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lori Clark Show. This episode of my podcast is brought to you with the help of ZoomUs, a video and audio conferencing interface. It's important to know that I'm in no way sponsored by Zoom. I just want to tell you how much I love it. It is very reliable, easy to use, and provides excellent audio and video files that my team and I produce to share the power of story with you. Another non-sponsored, couldn't do without, but just have to tell you how good it is, is Squarespace. When they say it is the all-in-one platform, it really is true. I go into the back end of my website multiple times a day, adjust things, post podcasts, add links, and look at our show's analytics, which all sync across my devices. And when I need an image, Squarespace provides an excellent resource that's powered by Unsplash. Now for my most favorite feature, the Squarespace app. Um, Being a working mom, there never seems to be enough time in my day. So when my daughter's in ballet, I sit in my car and upload, post, and manage everything on my website from the app. It's really cool and seamless. Squarespace is really, really simple and very dedicated to helping me create a brand of excellence. So with that, big shout out to Zoom, Squarespace, and Unsplash. Thank you for helping me tell people's stories. With that said, let's move on to the best part about today, the show. Please allow me to welcome my next guest on The Lori Clark Show. Welcome, Jeffrey. Uh, Thank you for coming today on the show. And um, I want to introduce you to Jeffrey Schiffer. He is the Executive Director at the Native Child and Family Services of Toronto. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. (laughs) Um, Let's just talk about your role and what you are doing with this fabulous, fabulous opportunity that you have. Yeah, for certain. So it's been, I just hit my two-year anniversary, in fact, as the ED at Native Child and Family Services of Toronto. And um, we are the largest multi-service Indigenous agency that does um, child welfare in Canada, along with a host of other services, so uh, supporting Indigenous children and families across the GTA. I want to dive into the meat and bones of this, because I want to know what got you to where you are today. Uh, where you started and, and how this all began. Sure. I mean, um, so I'm a Métis person. I was born in Coast Salish Territory in what's today Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, and I would say that um, part of my history definitely impacts where I've, where I've come to today. Um, part of my Indigenous history and, um, you know, the history that Indigenous people have experienced. And for me, that really showed itself uh, in my family uh, through a documentary that the National Film Board of Canada made uh, about my mother, Shirley Turcott, in the 1980s called To a Safer Place. Mm. Uh, it was a film that, I mean, some of my, one of my first memories, in fact, is of my mom uh, putting me to bed in, in the middle of the afternoon. We were in our house, and I remember the light shining through the window and saying, Mom, what's going on? Why are you trying to put me to bed? It's the middle of the day. Um, and she said, it's okay, Jeff, it's for a movie. It's just for a movie. So I remember them uh, shooting the video when I was probably four or five years old. For those who may not know it, it's about my mother's survival, uh, you know, through a, a really challenging childhood of physical and sexual abuse at the hands of her father. 
Um, and, you know, many Indigenous folk who came through the residential school system uh, came out the other end not in a good way, right? And so she grew up in a home that was very much impacted by uh, colonization. And so I knew growing up that um, she had had a hard life. I, I, I knew that she had spent some time in foster care. I knew that she had grown up in a basement and knew that her siblings had, had really struggled. And, you know, that was explained to me, obviously, in age-appropriate ways uh, over the years. Um, but it wasn't actually until I was in my early 20s that I actually watched to a safer place. I remember um, it was, I was about to go to post-secondary. So I had not, I was 21. I was about to go to uh, UBC. I had done a couple of years at Langara College trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and, and I was taking this nonfiction um, creative writing course where you were supposed to write about your yourself or your family. And so I thought, well, I've never really delved into To a Safer Place. Maybe I'll watch it and, and write something about it. Uh, and so I watched the film, um, and it certainly had a profound impact on me. And in fact, I started having this reoccurring dream after I watched the film. I, I would be sitting downstairs in the house that I grew up on on Cambian 17th. I grew up in, in Mount Pleasant. And, um, and I was downstairs in the basement, and sitting on a couch in front of the television, and we had this these stairs that came down the patio to a glass door. Uh, and I would sort of turn over nonchalantly and I would see this black bear just kind of walk down the stairs very casually. He'd bring up his claws and he'd slide the door open. And then as soon as he slid the patio door open, he would run in and chase me. And I'd always turn and run up the stairs to, to get to the second floor of the house. And he would always catch me on the stairs and pin me down on the stairs and I'd wake up. Um, and so I started having this dream again and again a few different times, and I finally told my mother about it, and she said, well, you know, dreams have a really special significance for Indigenous people, and a lot of times they, they bring messages, or they can be visits from the ancestors, there's lots of stuff that happens in dreams. They might just be your brain working stuff out, but who knows, why don't you uh, talk to someone about it? So I did, I went and I talked to Dr. Alana Young, well, she wasn't a doctor at the time, but she was a counselor at the, um, at the First Nations House of Learning at UBC, and I talked to her about this dream and she said, well, you know, the funny thing about dreaming from an indigenous perspective is you can sit and revisit a dream anytime you like. And uh, there's something called bias control where you can try on different parts of a dream. And she said, it seems like you really want to get away from that bear. Uh, you try so hard every time to get away from that bear and the dream ends. So what would it be like to let that bear catch you? And I thought, well, I, you know, in the dream, it seems terrifying, but right here in your office, that'd, that'd be just fine. So I got into this kind of body-centered place, and we can talk about the indigenous psychotherapy methodology my mother developed later if it comes up, but I, I, I sat down in a, in a sort of body-centered way and revisited that dream, and I let the bear catch me, and so uh, instead of turning and running, I let the bear come up to me, and it did, and he pinned me down, and I could feel his claws in my chest, and I thought he was going to eat my face, but instead of eating my face, the bear had all of these things that he needed to tell me. He had all these things that he needed to tell me about being a Métis person in a post-secondary system and about succeeding in institutions that are based on very different ideas of learning and knowledge and values. Um, told me things like I needed to start going to ceremony, which I had never done before. I had smudged and done certain things, but I was never going, I wasn't going to sweat lodge, which they had at UBC. And so through this dream, which I think for me was really um, you know, the catalyst of which was revisiting that film and watching that film and seeing myself and my family in it, I was able to connect to a deeper, deeper place in myself um, and really understand certain things that were going to be important uh, for me and my path moving forward. <laughs> All right, so we're done. No, just kidding. <laughs> 
That is profound to me in many, many ways. That is amazing because oftentimes, Jeffrey, dreams like that that are reoccurring are just traumatic. You know, where people are, they wake up in in sweats and it's just this, it's a plaguing thing. I mean, you're having a dream of 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 a black bear pinning you down and your rational mind says, this thing is going to take my head off. Like, just take my head off. And instead, you know, the movement to a greater understanding of, of outside of fear. What happens outside of fear? Mm-hmm. That is really cool. Um, mm-hmm. Body-centered. You're talking about body-centered. And I, I think that in this conversation with me, um, we don't need to wait to talk about this later. Let's talk about it now because I think it flows into the conversation. Um, so talk to me about this body-centered work. Well, you know, I think my mom's one of those gurus who, who grew up and developed something that uh, was a gap that, that she filled not through uh, extensive academic study or, or you know, years of, of, you know, analytical research, but really through lived experience that led to a deeper understanding of something that um, others had struggled to comprehend. And so I think her lived experience as someone that lived horrific trauma that itself was also informed by intergenerational trauma led her to understand really what trauma is and what it means from an Indigenous perspective. And, um, and we're getting to a point now where neuroscience is beginning to understand a lot of the things that she was talking about in the 80s and the 90s, right? We, through the discovery of things like the mirror neuron system and emotional contagion and social contagion, uh, we know that, um, you know, our brains are wired to fire together and that the trauma that I experienced can certainly be experienced by you. I think we've all seen those um, uh, videos on social media where someone will walk onto a train or something and just start laughing uncontrollably and other people will just start laughing around them because, you know, emotion is contagious, right? And we also, I think, perhaps can identify with the feeling we get when someone walks into a room or comes to the workplace really, really angry and really, really livid and you can feel that emotion on you, right? And we used to talk about that anecdotally, but now we can actually see how that happens in the brain. We can actually observe and we recognize that uh, trauma itself is intergenerational, but it's also lived and it's also vicarious, right? So we can live a trauma. You can get abused, right? Or punched in the face or something like that. Um, you can watch somebody else be abused and that's, that's vicarious. You will feel that trauma and we can observe that in the brain. And we also know now through some of the really interesting research that's coming on or happening through epigenetics that trauma spills across generations. So, um, and so when we think about that, uh, an Indigenous perspective on trauma really comes from um, an Indigenous philosophy of all my relations, which you may have heard an Indigenous person say all my relations. A lot of people do say this, and it really it indicates the Indigenous understanding of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all things, right? And so understanding that there's vicarious stuff that happens between people, but why should we assume that that's just limited to people? From an Indigenous perspective, we are also connected and in relationship with everything around us, including land and plants and animals. So embodied approaches to trauma from an Indigenous perspective encourage you to kind of get grounded in your own way, to be able to really feel what's happening in your body, but also to understand how that process is connected to the world around you Mm -hmm. and to your ancestors across time. Uh, and it's a very different approach and a very different way of, of, of comprehending trauma. And it leads to very different tools for addressing it. Uh, 
Uh, and that's really the, the, um, the type of traumatic um, uh, approach that my mother developed through what she now calls uh, Indigenous Focusing Oriented Therapy, which she's been teaching uh, to clinicians for over 30 years now, uh, mostly in Indigenous communities. And I grew up in a house where that was being taught and being worked out and being developed and, you know, also had the opportunity to travel with her to many different communities, Indigenous communities, and watch her teach that and see the impact. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, so that's so, so learning uh, how to be embodied in that place and, and learning how trauma can be a teacher and also normalizing trauma because it's also something that's ubiquitous. And we sometimes forget that, you know, you were just saying, oh, bad dream is people wake up sweaty and it's a terrible thing. And a lot of mainstream clinicians will say, if you're having nightmares, we've got to find a way to stop them. But from an indigenous focusing oriented perspective, if you're having nightmares, that's a great thing because your, your brain or body or spirit is trying to bring you a message. It's not about running away from the dream. It's about running towards it so that you can get the knowledge that's there. It's not about running from the bear. It's about letting him catch you because he's got something really important to say. And that's the case with almost all nightmares. There's an important message there and you'll keep having it until you get to the point. I, I just want to tell you that um, I, I'm stunned because I've had a reoccurring dream my whole life mm. and I was being chased and just as I come up over this mound this person is just about to kill me and I can mm. feel their breath on my back because they're so close and they never kill me mm-hmm. and I've talked to many people about this and it has tormented me um, since mm. I was three years old and it stopped in my early or my late teens but it is a there's a residue of that and it stopped because I I I it just stopped (laughs) someone actually said to me um uh a a woman said this she told me the dream she didn't know me she was like a prophet and she just said this is gonna stop this is your dream this is gonna stop Mm. and that was really profound for me but you know what Jeffrey that dream still lingers because while it doesn't wake me up and, and torment me, I have never done what you've just said. And your, what you just said here is a gateway for further healing for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so then let's discuss this. So you're on the couch you're, you're, or the chair and you're having this dream and you reframe the message of this dream and it and and the bear tells you all of these things and says look this is what your life like what what i need you to learn and then what do you do with that well so i you know i did i i started i, I started going to the first nations house of learning at ubc i started participating in the monthly sweat ceremonies that they had there i started connecting with culture more and you know and i started also reading avidly i started learning uh, the academics, but also learning ceremony and spirituality. And, you know, for me, that led to me doing my, you know, just a bachelor's and uh, with honors in, um, uh, in anthropology, but looking at residential schooling and how that had um, really modified the transmission of learning uh, and, and cultural reproduction for Indigenous people. And I guess I finished that work and, um, and I wanted to continue. I knew that I wanted to do more schooling. I was really interested in education, but I was also interested in anthropology, the uh, the study of Indigenous culture, um, not just in the past, but in the contemporary. And I did what many folks in my generation, right on the cusp, you know, kind of 
still, I, I grew up without the internet, but I'm still, you know, very millennial in some ways. And, and I use Google. I literally Googled. I, I Googled anthropology and education, PhD, enter. Um, and what came up were really the only three programs at that time in North America where you could get a combined PhD in anthropology and education. And one of them was at the uh, Teachers College at Columbia University in New York. Um, so I threw my hat in the ring. I said, well, I don't know. I never really thought about New York or, or going to Columbia, but it was a joint program. I just finished a, a BA, and this was a program that would allow me to do my master's uh, and my PhD together uh, to continue to pursue what I was interested in. Um, and I was very fortunate to be accepted. Um, and so we moved, uh, moved to New York City to continue uh, living and learning about Indigenous culture and how I could um, apply it to my own life. But also more deeply to people around me, right? Because I had been through my own family history and through the things that I had seen at that time, visiting different indigenous communities, um, I was aware, uh, acutely aware of how deeply wounded our country is, right? Mm. Um, and this is before, you know, this is, you know, before, um, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, this is right around the time of RCAP, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, where um, Canada was starting to recognize that um, uh, many generations of Canadians had grown up with no understanding of the history of colonization or residential schooling. And, you know, we just talked about how trauma is vicarious, right? Yes, we, yes. we spend so much time in Canada thinking about the trauma of Indigenous people without ever asking the question of how traumatized the people are who perpetuated that. Do you know what I mean? I do. Because uh, the whole country is traumatized. And that's, that's, that's also what I mean about normalizing trauma. Um, because um, when you think about a country that was born through colonization, that was born through um, this moral superiority complex that said that folks who had arrived here to a land that wasn't being used by Indigenous people, they could just take that land and knew better based on their religion and science and other things, yeah. um, that has continued to impact all Canadians across the generations. Um, and so I wanted to be part of the solution. I didn't know what that was at that time or what that would look like for me, uh, but I knew that I wanted to get involved in that. I knew that I was connected to it through my personal history. I knew that I could see and walk around in the world and understand and feel how it impacted people, and I was driven to do something about it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And, and so then, so you developed some programs too, right? I did. So I did. Um, so I went, I went away to New York for a couple of years and I did some schooling. I actually did my master's in Guatemala. I wanted to have the traditional, you know, anthropological experience. I lived in a little Maya village in the lowland jungles of Guatemala, learning about land rights and things like that. And, you know, when it came to do the time, when I came to do the, the uh, research for my PhD, I wanted to come back to Canada. I wanted to study decolonization. I wanted to, mm about what I could do and I've always worked uh, throughout my studies um, and when I came back I, I did a year of research at Vancouver Aboriginal Child and Family Services Society for my PhD and I started working for them afterwards while I was writing it and one of the still one of the best things that I've ever done uh, is the creation the co-development of the uh, culturally relevant urban wellness program at right. BC Farm yeah uh, and, and that program is still running today and it's a program that brings Aboriginal youth in care together with newcomer youth to spend about eight months outside on the UBC farm on weekends, um, connecting to land for wellness and learning about Indigenous medicines. And um, really, it's about uh, trauma-informed land-based practice, which again goes back to that same Indigenous understanding 
that um, really to get through trauma, it's not about sitting on a couch across from someone and talking it out. Um, it's about connecting to each other and the world around you. And these kids, um, you know, the transformation that I saw from just bringing kids outside and teaching them how to grow medicines and sitting outside and connecting to land. Um, you know, I remember sitting with a group of elders on, on Musqueam First Nation and saying, because we wanted to develop a program there, I wasn't going to do it without talking to them. It was their, it's their traditional territory. And I said, yeah. I want to develop a program to support kids in care. Um, you know, and a lot of the research right now is saying that we should focus on concrete skills. So we're going to teach them financial literacy and nutrition and resume writing and gardening and food right. sovereignty. Uh, and they turned to me and they said, well, that's all great, Jeff, but, um, you know, you can give a kid as many concrete skills as you like, but they're not going to be able to implement them in a sustainable way if they don't feel good about themselves. So they said, why don't you, why don't you start with just connecting to land as a way to support young people who are struggling to feel good about who they are? And developing some good relationships and connections. And, you know, one of the most powerful things that my mom told me is that when she was growing up, she didn't really have parents that cared for her or that, that demonstrated love in any way. But she said that she always felt that she was loved by the land. She always felt like she had a connection to land around her. And, you know, she always says to, to people who struggle or have a chip on their shoulders or feel bad about not having parents, um, you know, it's great to have parents, but it doesn't matter because any of us can be raised by a blade of grass. And I think there's something really powerful in that commentary. <laughs> there's is. something really powerful to, uh, about that sentiment. And well, I definitely saw it play out at the UBC farm. Well, and I can see how, you know, for me, land is very important and, and earth and, and the connection to nature around us. And it's something that I have grown to realize the level of importance in my life. And so this is really interesting when I was when I was looking at what this particular program was offering, the understanding of, you know, medicine and and how to create different maybe solves or whatever that that plant is for that brings back this amazing respect for the world that we live in. And it and you can't look at a a plant or a tree and say, oh, you know, let's just, let's just, you know, treat it with disrespect because there's, there's this reverence for the purpose of why it is. And I think the greater teaching that, that, and skill is this, the presence of uncertainty that dwells within nature where the tree doesn't ask, the tree doesn't ever ask, why, why am I here? Like, who, who made this? Who made me? What a joke. You know, I, I don't have any purpose. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm crammed in this forest and there's a whole bunch of other kinds of trees around me and look at all the shrubs around my, my roots and I'm angry about this. No, the tree just says, these are my roots and look at the beauty of what and where I've been planted. And, and there's this uh, message of resilience within the nature that I just... I have come to respect and and honor, and it's been a, a a lesson of an everyday life lesson for me of of what it is like to move through trauma. I've had trauma in my life, and I use nature as a way of connecting and helping me uh, stabilize. That is what it sounds like this program is all about, and and I just find it. Uh, just incredible. And so when you are, are giving people these skills, uh, what is the dynamic there? So are you, the spiritual principles come into play as well? 
They do for sure. They do for sure. But I think, you know, and I think back to Larry Grant, a Musqueam elder that we worked with, and because we asked this question, we recognized that we were on Musqueam territory working with Indigenous children from many different nations and non-Indigenous children from many different nations. And so there was a question about whether or not somebody that's not from a traditional Indigenous territory can connect to that place for wellness. You know, and Larry always said to me, well, you know what, yes, this is Musqueam territory and it has a very particular significance for our people, but anybody can connect to this land for wellness, right? So I think I try to prioritize the fact that um, all humans can connect to land for wellness, regardless of who you are and where you are, but we do it in different ways because of who we are, if that makes sense, right? So there's, there's a different cultural significance to everybody that everyone has, that all cultures have about connecting to land, but the research says it, and, and you know, none of this stuff is anecdotal at this point. It's not, I walk outside and I feel better. I mean, the hard data shows us that being outside is good for us, and in fact, it's showing us that right now in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic. Oh. The research that's now coming out of Italy and Spain is showing that uh, the mental health of children is at risk because social isolation is keeping them away from green space, right? Um, and so we, we know the importance of, of being outside uh, and how important it is for physical health and for mental health and emotional health, but certainly for many cultures and for Indigenous people in particular, there's a very deep spiritual connection to land and holistic wellness when we think about including spiritual health within that equation um, really requires access to land. And I think, you know, from my, you know, it's just so rich. This culture is so rich. And yet, you know, there is, do you feel like there's a lack of understanding about the depth of this culture that, that, that has so, um, can offer so many beautiful perspectives I do. I do think there is a lack and we're, we're working to try to understand that. I mean, I, I initially came to Toronto to work for the city, in fact, to work mm. here at City Hall. I spent a short period of time uh, as the Indigenous Affairs Consultant for the City of Toronto. I was helping uh, the City Manager's Office launch the first Indigenous Affairs Office for the City of Toronto. And as part of that work, I uh, had the opportunity to develop the Indigenous Cultural Competency Training uh, for the Toronto Public Service. They're right. rolling that out right now to about 35,000 Toronto Public Servants. Right. Um, and when I was thinking about that, developing that course, one of the things I really focused on was what you're describing, the different way in which we understand and conceive of land. And so folks listening won't be able to see this, but I, I always have one of these on my desk. So this in my hand, for those who can't see it, is basically what most people would call a rock. So I used to go and train, you know, directors at the city of Toronto and other folk. And at a certain point, I would pull a, a rock out of my blazer pocket and I would hold it up and I would say, okay, what is, what is this called? What is this called? And, you know, I would get a bunch of different, you know, answers from the crowd, a stone, a rock. Uh, and I would say, yes, yes, okay, fair enough. And I would say, then what is it? What, is, what actually is it? And, and, and the folks at Toronto would say, oh, uh, crushed sediment or minerals or pieces of the earth. And I would say, okay, good, good. That's all really relevant. And then I would say, what is it for? And they would say, oh, well, it's uh, for uh, building or for making tools or they make a joke throwing or skipping. And I would say, yes, my seven-year-old would agree. Fair enough, fair enough. And I would say, good. So these are all mainstream Canadian understandings of what I'm holding. This is called a rock. It's made out of sediment. It's a piece of the earth. And it's for building or tools. Good, fair enough. Now, if I take this same object and I go and I visit an Indigenous community and I sit down and I say, what is this? They will tell me, oh, that's a grandfather, a grandfather. Oh, interesting. Okay, what is it? 
Oh, well, that's one of your oldest relatives. Huh, that's interesting. What's it for? It's for healing and wellness, right? Now, these are two very different worldviews, very different perspectives on exactly the same thing. Because that all my relations perspective that talks about how we're related to the world around us, relatives aren't based on, on blood and biology. They're based on our relationships to things. And what is older than the relationship we have to the actual earth where we emerge, right? Like this little rock. This little rock is a piece of the earth from which we all came. So from an indigenous perspective, this is a relative. This right here is a grandfather. It's one of our relatives. And it's for healing and ceremony. That's why we take grandfathers into the sweat lodge. That's why I can carry this in my blazer pocket when I'm having a rough day or, or I need to navigate some seriously challenging community trauma. I know I've got a little grandfather backing me, right? But how do we reconcile conversations as Canadians if we're using exactly the same word, but there's worlds between our understanding, right? Yeah. Um, that's the kind of gap that we need to bridge when we think about um, understanding land and wellness in, in, in different ways. I, you know, there's, and then I don't even know what to do next because that's so rich and full for me. Like that is really another moment that's so, so powerful to me. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, I was actually in my mind when you were showing that rock, I was saying, um, I knew I wasn't thinking where you were going to go with it, but you're saying, what is this? And you're saying, okay, some people would say, you know, you can throw it, you can do it. And I immediately thought that's the soul of the world. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> I have this rock here. I see it. Yes. And I can't carry it with me, but yeah. I, 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 for those of you that aren't seeing, I have a much bigger rock. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a feeling that that's a mountain right there. Um, it is just, but I understand the power of that. And, and it's just interesting to me that some of the ways that I have been interpreting life, they're the same that you're saying, but just a little bit different. You know, I, I wouldn't take a, a rock as wellness. I would take it as more of healing. And, and it's just profound that... I see where I'm missing things. I see where my gap is. And today, the purpose of our conversation is, is really becoming clear to me. You are, you are here as this amazing guest to show a perspective that can fill in and bridge a gap that is, you know, I did not know existed for me. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Now, as you move down the line in terms of the work that you do, um, how how has your teenage years and your development, like, let's talk about that. Is, is there a developmental process there that contributed to a greater insight or passion that you are now living? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think... You know, I didn't look at To a Safer Place until I was in my early 20s. And so it took me a while to really understand all of the intergenerational trauma that I was carrying and to understand the impact that that had on me, right? And, you know, I did, I, I moved around high schools. I went to three different high schools. I struggled with the schooling system. I didn't, uh, I wasn't interested or entertained by it. I, um, you know, and I, I, um, I did, you know, struggle at times throughout my teenage years with, substance abuse and experimenting with with those kinds of things and you know I think that um, 
through that experience, um, you know, it was funny, like I, I didn't pay any attention in school really or invest any time in it uh, until my final year when I realized <laughs> I better pull my act together and get some decent grades. So that I, I have a few of those people in my life. <laughs> but, but, you know, the stuff that I struggled with really was um, the manifestations of intergenerational trauma that I didn't understand. Um, that came out in ways that I, I felt that I needed to respond to. And often teenagers will turn to drinking or smoking pot or doing whatever else to kind of fill that gap, to fill that void, right? And, um, and, and yes, I mean, working later with youth who carry lots of intergenerational trauma and are impacted by trauma that they live on a daily uh, on a daily basis or that is that it is impacting them through their family history. I live a little piece of that through my teenage years, right? I, I have a bit of an understanding, a very small understanding. And, you know, I should just say too, that as a visibly white Métis guy that grew up with a mom that had a rough life, but was successful, I didn't have a lot of lived trauma in my life, right? So I understand a piece of it. I don't understand all of it, but I have a window into what so many indigenous youth are struggling with across Canada today. Uh, well, yeah. are you talking about when you say this, I want to just explore this a little bit, because when you say intergenerational and then you say, well, look, you know, my mom was successful and there was, you know, we were, I was not living out trauma. So you're referring to a generational trauma. Would you be referring in that way? Yeah. So, I mean, sorry. And so it's always important to define our terms, but like live trauma, I define as like, being in a home that's abusive, right? yes. you're living it, you're living in trauma, you're being abused physically or verbally, you're living in poverty or all that kind of stuff, like, um, or there's substance abuse and yelling in the home, like that's trauma that you're living on a daily basis or experiencing the microaggressions and, and people being racist towards you, people following you around in a store because of how you look, because they're convinced you're going to steal or people calling you derogatory names, all that kind of stuff, right? So I wasn't getting that stuff. Right. I was not getting that stuff as a as a, I mean, I could walk around the high school. Most people didn't even know that I had indigenous ancestry. Right. Um, but separate and distinct from that, I still had a world of stuff that I was carrying inside me um, that I had brought in with me. Uh, you know, that, that it came with me. It was a, it was part of the package deal. Uh, the uh, right. And, and I think it's also important for us to understand that with intergenerational trauma, comes really powerful intergenerational knowledge. Yeah. And that's another thing that we forget. We forget that, you know, Indigenous kids are carrying so much from the legacy of Canada's colonial history, mm. uh, but, they, but they know how to survive. They are resilient. They understand how to support each other and come together as a community. And so um, it took me a little while to work all that mess out and figure out what it meant and how I could harness it and um, where I wanted to go with it. And so because of that complexity, I did have a few rocky years there in my teens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And is that how... Is any of that fueled, the the rockiness is fueled sort of this next level of your life where you are, you know, from what I can see, you're inspiring and you're inspiring people to greatness, to connection with the the immense power of a life that can be lived in connection to the earth, connection to your, the generations that have gone before even as as hard as it is, because this is the thing about what I'm hearing from you is life is messy. And and the people that have gone before us, their lives were messy, too. Mm -hmm. And everyone is sorting out and working through this uh, path of of messiness. And and that's really what I hear you saying. 
life is messy and life is traumatic and that's okay. Um, <laughs> for sure. Um, and, and I think that, um, but I also think we have a lot of work to do as Canadians collectively. I also think that, well, we have some work to do as Canadians, but we also have some work to do as people. Um, the earth is not having a good time right now when we think about, uh, the climate crisis and, um, we sometimes forget how complex indigenous civilizations were before um, settlers arrived in North America, right? Like on Turtle Island. And I remember being so surprised by this article that was released in February um, last year that basically they, they developed a, a laser mapping technique over the Yucatan. I've spent some time in the Yucatan. Mm-hmm. I really like the big cities and step pyramids they have there. And it's hard. If you've never been down there, try, I, I think about these archaeologists running through the, you know, the jungle with machetes trying to unearth pyramids. Not easy work. No. They developed a laser mapping technique where they just flew drones over the jungle and they were able to actually see the stuff that was underneath it. <laughs> and what they discovered was that at the height of its civilization, the, the largest city in the Maya in the Maya world had 60,000 structures spanning an area the size of Manhattan. Right? Now, this is a massive, complex city with the most advanced calendar of its time, mathematics, engineering, agriculture, health, science. Right? So there was an amazing indigenous sophistication that existed right here in North America, right? Uh, and the world was healthy. The population was healthy. There was no serious disease. Um, so how do we get from that to where we are right now? And, and how do we, and I know that we can't turn the clock backwards, but we've got a couple things to do. We've got to reconcile the relationship between the settlers and newcomers that now live here and the indigenous people of North America. And we've got to get serious about recognizing that indigenous innovation is going to be important for us to create a healthy world. Um, and I don't know how we can do that when so many Indigenous children are still being removed from their families and bounced through the foster care system, right? So again, no matter how many times I tried to escape child welfare, I kept getting pulled back to it, right? right. Um, and I don't know what that is or why that is. I just had my two-year performance appraisal with my board of directors. And the president of my board said to me, it was interesting, she said, you know, I can't figure out, because like, because they had looked for a new ED for years, and um, I just kind of happenstance came to Toronto and fell into it. It's an interesting story. And, and they, were, they were saying, it really seems like you're supposed to be here, and we don't know why that is or what's going on. Um, and I said to them, every time I try to do, veer off and do something that's unrelated to child welfare, I get, I get pulled back to it. So, so there's something about land or spirit or who knows what it's put me where I am. And I really do feel blessed to have the opportunity to do the work I'm doing at Native Child. Well, what is the story of when you say, I don't, I, that's an interesting story. What is the interesting story about you getting to there? Well, so, I mean, I, I, you know, I did my, 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 I I went and I did my master's work in in Guatemala. I was looking at land rights, indigenous land rights. And I wanted to come back to Vancouver and I wanted to look at decolonization. I asked about five or six agencies. Can I come and study for a year? to see what decolonization looks like in your in your setting. And the only one that would take me was Vancouver Aboriginal Child and Family <laughs> Services Society. So again, I'm fine. So I worked there for four years. I did crew. I loved it. And then actually I left and I moved on to the Justice Institute of British Columbia. Um, and I was the director for their Office of Indigenization, looking at what decolonization looks like in justice and public safety, <laughs> working with police and paramedics and corrections officers. And I thought, maybe I'll help government in large systems. Right. So then I moved to Toronto to help City Hall. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this with the city. This is good. Yeah. It's very different. It's not child welfare. And I just happened to be asked to go to Native Child on behalf of the city to give a presentation. Uh, Toronto every year has a group of Toronto urban fellows. They're young people that the city sponsors to come and 
work in the city for a year to learn about different divisions and then hopefully join the public service. And they do a series of educational modules, one of which is on the city's work with Indigenous people. Mm. So as the Indigenous Affairs Consultant, I was asked to give them a presentation on what the city is doing. And that presentation just happened to be taking place in the Longhouse at Native Child. Mm. Um, and the founder of Native Child, Ken Richard, was there. He's been the only executive director before me. He was there for over 30 years, along with the, the president of the board at the time. Um, and I just came and I gave a presentation and I guess I get feisty sometimes, I'm a little bit inspirational. And so I was, I was really, I was on it about the stuff the cities need to do to get serious about reconciliation. And um, they just came to me after and they said, we're looking for, would you consider a conversation? We're looking for a new ED. And, and I even said, I went and I spoke to the board for about an hour and I said, at the end, you probably shouldn't hire me for this job. I'm too young and I'm not a social worker. Find somebody else. But they, they, they did. They, uh, they gave me, they offered me the position. Um, and I did. I talked to a lot of people about it, uh, mentors in my life, elders and knowledge keepers. Should I be doing this? Why do I keep getting pulled back? And the advice I was given was go for it. Um, and so that's what I've done. That's what I've done. And that's what I'm doing. Yeah. So when you were speaking about um, what a city needs to do for reconciliation, what would you be? What what kinds of things were you encouraging for people? Sure, yeah. Well, so during that time, I had the opportunity to write a, a small chapter in a book called Authenticities, like cities at the end. And oh, I was yeah. writing about Indigenous urban planning. Um, and I did a bit of a scan of the jurisdiction and I looked at what different, um, you know, offices are doing. And really, it's about, I, I, I think I narrowed it down to about four principles. And I really hope for the sake of us and, and the listeners today that I can remember them. <laughs> but um, but I, I do know that um, there's been a lot of conversation about engagement. I mean, the first one is really moving from engagement to co-development, right? So cities focus a lot on, let's engage the Indigenous population. They go and they talk to Indigenous people, and then they go away and they build whatever they wanted to build anyway. And they put some beads and feathers on it. And they, you know slap a couple pictures of Indigenous people in their consultation report. That really doesn't cut it. So it's not about engaging with Indigenous people. It's about co-developing. It's about building with them, right? Um, Through that process, it's about inclusion. So it's about making sure that you have Indigenous people as part of your staff and that your co-development is diverse enough with who you're involving. Mm. Um, Then it's really about power sharing, which is the hardest part. Because if you're going to co-develop something with somebody, they better have enough decision-making power to actually influence the outcome, right? right. So, right. so and, you know, and Vancouver has been really great at this. They have their reconciliation action plan. They have tables that bring together urban Indigenous organizations and local First Nations with government to develop plans and have some shared decision-making, right? Um, and then the last piece, and the, this, the trickiest piece, is the land back piece, which is finding ways that you can... Um, provide space and land for Indigenous people. Again, Vancouver is exemplary for this. They've given land back to Musqueam First Nation. But Mm. also, I mean, one of the things that the foundational board at Native Child was so incredible about was saying that we need to reclaim space Uh in Toronto's largest urban centre for Indigenous people, right? So we have about 18 locations at Native Child, but 11 of those properties we own. We're sitting on a big, big real estate portfolio. And when you own land as an Indigenous organisation, the stuff that you can do is phenomenal. I mean, we may not have a lodge on our ground floor or a sweat lodge. We have a sweat lodge on our roof. We have a green roof downtown Toronto, right? Um, and so getting cities to get to this, this point where they recognize that strong institutions need space and land. Yeah. Well, and and speaking about, you know, the Native Child and Family Services of Toronto, there's, I in, when I was looking at your website, there's 300 staff. Like, this is not small, 
No, no, it's not. It's one of the largest organizations of its kind. Um, yeah, we've got about 300 staff working across 18 locations, delivering about 100 different programs to about 7,000 unique individuals annually. And, you know, the spectrum is incredibly broad. Everything from Aboriginal Head Start and early on centers and daycares to yeah. youth services and summer camps and transitional housing, children's mental health, clinical services, child and family well-being, pre and postnatal, a medical clinic. It's 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 broad. Lots of cultural. Well, programs. it's basically all of life. Like it's well, it's like life here and mm-hmm. and and this beautiful way of imparting it and encouraging it. And it's, yeah, and our service model is brilliant and it's sacred. It was developed through four days of ceremony by a group of elders and knowledge keepers, you know, in the mid 80s who came together and said, if we are going to do better for Indigenous children and families, what do we need? And through four days of ceremony, they came up with this multi service integrated agency. And we've been striving towards it ever since. And I have to really just acknowledge Ken Richard, the founder and first ED, who for 30 years fought and fought and advocated and fought to get us to where we are today. Uh, and I've been so blessed to um, have the baton passed to me. I've inherited an amazing organization, and we're continuing continuing to grow uh, every year. And and um, in terms of the transition houses, you know, what is that? What is life like for that? What is the what does that look like? Sure. Yeah. So um, we have five transition houses, and last year we also opened Toronto's first healing lodge for Indigenous mums. Uh-huh. The transition houses um, two for men, three for women. They focus on youth. So. Um, in cities like Toronto and Vancouver and elsewhere, housing is a real, real challenge for youth, right? And we know that foster care is a pipeline to homelessness, and that, that often leads to incarceration. I think it was um, um, a study came out not too long ago in Vancouver showing that 40% of the kids on the street were previously in foster care. So our houses, our old Victorian houses, are beautiful Toronto brick homes. Mm. Um, they, we have stage one and stage two. In stage one, people have their individual room and everything else is shared. And in stage two, they have their own units. And basically, it's each stage and youth can stay there for 18 months. Um, they're paired up with a housing worker. They're paired up with an education worker. They have a place where they can live. There's cultural programming. We help them get education, find jobs, and move into housing. So really, it's about identifying youth that many of whom have come from care. Some haven't. They're on the streets. They're struggling to find a place to live. And we're building them up. We're wrapping them in services and building them up. And moving them along to health and wellness is really the model there. You know, I was um, I was just working where we've started a series on nurturing emotional courage. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're talking about leaning in to the 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 uncomfortability of the power of an emotion when you're feeling it and how to, you know, move in and go through the middle of it because you know, so often we want to walk away or run away. And, and um, when, as we were having this discussion, uh, Trish Wagner, she is a, a teacher at a, at a local high school and she's just received her master's in counseling and just lovely, lovely woman and very well informed and 30 years of teaching experience has brought her to teach psychology to, you know, 10, 11 and 12, uh, grade 10, 11 and 12. And, and what she's discovered is through this conversation about the power of talking, the power of saying, it's not about me teaching you. It's about what you're feeling in the time. How does this work for you? And it sounds like that is really what these, this program in the Transition House is, is saying, this doesn't work. So let's see what is going to work for you. You are introducing people to 
courage to what it is to be resilient and to do it with a level of and a capacity of that self-introspection and um, self-sufficiency that is so interesting to me. Mm. It's really cool. Certainly, yeah. We've got to meet people where they're at, for sure. Well, yeah. And, and I think that's the, you know, we were talking in that interview about self-compassion and, and this way of which we tend to not... We don't talk to ourselves in the way that I'm talking to you, like where there's empowerment and and this, you know, collective. Yes, this is good. You are good, Jeffrey. Like what you are offering to the world here is amazing. We tend to not talk to ourselves that way. We talk to ourselves like, oh, you know, you can't do this. You're a failure. You know, look what you did over there, you know, and and there's this disempowerment. And I just so appreciate the message and the groundwork that this is creating for for people to live a successful life. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And I would say that those feelings, those conversations, that internal critic, I often refer to it as, um, is really well developed for Indigenous people. Again, thinking about intergenerational narratives of Indigenous people not being smart or being lazy huh. or being drunk or being, you know, yeah. and so, and all of that again is, is carried by Indigenous youth. And so we have a lot of work to do to help them to overcome those narratives. Uh, and connecting to land and culture and building a sense of belonging and community is really critical in getting to a place of people feeling like they have some compassion for themselves uh, and feeling like um, they have an important role to play and that they are needed uh, to support their community. Uh, and so that's definitely part of the work that we do uh, at Native Child. Well, and it's also they, they serve as the rock that you so lovely. You're great in holding it up and saying, look at this rock. And they serve a pathway to connect to those who have gone before, the ancestors, and to people who have been wounded. They are that self. They are that healer. It's the work that your mother has done. It's the work that you're doing. And it's what you're bringing down. This, this You talk about intergenerational. You know, as I watched the, the documentary with your mom, I was amazed at how she spoke. You know, just this, just this confidence and self-empowerment that she, she was not raised with that. That was not what it was. I, you know, she said, you know, um, in this, in, in the documentary, there was an interview with the neighbors and, and they had said, she said, well, what did I look like? And they said, grubby. And I watched her, I watched her kind of like, she kind of went like this. And then she said, we were grubby because we did not have laundry service. We were grubby because, because we weren't allowed to shower and to bathe. We didn't have a spark because we were not loved. <sighs> she turned the tide for this generation and the intergenerational trauma from her family line. Yeah. And in turn, you've done it as well. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, so many kids in previous generations didn't have a spark. I want to make sure all the ones today are on fire. You know what I mean? And we have got to, it's, it's, it's incumbent upon all of us to do that. Um, and she certainly did a phenomenal job giving me love and support. Um, and that's what we're trying to do um, at Native Child for so many kids that they're also struggling. How did the, um, how does this 
connection with your mom and the work that she's done play now in your life with the uh, Native child and family? Um, I mean, I definitely think that what I've learned from her about trauma and taking an Indigenous approach to it Mm -hmm. is incredibly valuable. I would say that probably about 10 years ago, give or take a few years, um, we recognized that, or she recognized that Aboriginal Focusing Oriented Therapy, as it was called at the time, was a clinical program meant for clinicians, right? And not everybody wants to be the clini- a clinician and not everybody has the time to spend a year on a clinical program. Right. Uh, and I was working in social work at the time and I said, you know, mom, regular frontline social workers need this stuff too, but none of them have the money or the time to do a year-long clinical program. Right. So she developed something called Indigenous Tools for Living, which is a small three-day course, three or five-day course, that breaks down a lot of the really important skills, and but none of the clinical stuff, just practical concrete skills, mm. um, to support people who work with trauma to be able to navigate it. And so I think that um, I, I, I've taught that course with her. I've taught that course with other instructors to educators, social workers, police, people in victim services. Um, So when I think about, I I use the tools. I use those tools on a daily basis. I think that um, the the upbringing that I had, um, being able to understand her vision and understanding of trauma, being able to travel to different Indigenous communities and see the impact that colonial history has had, Mm -hmm. and then to be able to learn from her some concrete tools, all of that strengthens me. And in fact, uh, strengthens staff at our agency because some of those really concrete tools I've started sharing uh, with folks. I remember being a local director of child welfare is hard, oh. right? Being an Indigenous person working in child welfare is really, really heavy because yeah. everywhere, everywhere that Indigenous organizations have emerged, I mean, during the 70s and 80s, Indigenous people were rising up and saying, we need Indigenous control of child welfare. There were, if you remember, in 74, there was a caravan from Vancouver all the way to Ottawa with Indigenous people protesting the 60s scoop, the fact that residential schooling had waned, but really it's essentially been replaced by child welfare and mm-hmm. the same stuff was going on. And so, but at the same time, you know, Indigenous agencies like mine have emerged to be the Indigenous response to the problem of mainstream child welfare, but are still very much and in many circumstances perceived as the bad guys, perceived as perpetuating a colonial system, right? Because we still have to work within legislation, right? So it is such a difficult task. You're trying to be a, you're trying to be strength-based and holistic and grounded in indigenous values and cultures, while at the same time um, working within structures of legislation and compliance that are built from an entirely different world system and worldview that in many cases, disable or create barriers for the work that you're trying to do. And this comes out uh, in, in, um, in anger and in trauma. And I remember my second week on the job, good God that I start out with, with a lot of fun, uh, <laughs> Native Child's first big protest, a group of people in front of our downtown location protesting that we were perpetuating genocide and stealing babies and doing all the stuff that the data shows that we're not doing. But these women were, were mad for good reason. These women were mad because of the intergenerational impact on their community. And we called in the big guns. We called in big Bob Watts, who worked on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We called in crisis communicators, this and that. And nobody could get this group to disband. And finally, after, I was so green. I was so new on the job. And finally, something just snapped in me. And I said, that's it. Forget it. And I went down myself. 
which I've been advised not to do because, you know, Facebook will have cameras out there and this and that, but I thought, forget it. So I'm like, this is, nobody can do this. I'm going to do this. I'm doing it. Wow. Um, so I went down and I went and I talked to these people and they were getting progressively and I kind of explained things and kept my cool and was using all the tools that I learned from my mom about deflecting trauma and protecting my center and being strong. <laughs> sure. And this one guy was just getting so agitated. He had had a tough go. He was getting so agitated in front of me, and, and I thought, oh, he's getting really bad. I thought, I thought I got to the point where I'm like, I'm pretty sure this guy's going to just punch me. He's going to lay me right out, and I guess that's what's going to happen. But then I, I got this other this other just thing popped up in my mind, and I remembered that always in my blazer pocket, I have a grandfather. And I reached into my pocket, I pulled out my rock, I held it right in front of his face, and I said, this is a grandfather. This is for healing and wellness. I want you to have this. And he, everything stopped. He looked at me. He grabbed the rock and he started crying and he hugged me and I hugged this guy for probably five minutes while he just weeped and weeped and weeped all of the stuff that he had been carrying. It just got all over me. It was fine. It was like fine to take it on. Like every now and then you got to take a hit from the team. So yep. cry on you, buddy. Just do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it de-escalated the entire situation and they all left. They all left. Right. After that, they were good to go. Right. And it was no amount of talking. We're going to get these guys to move. There was nothing else that we could have done. Um, but I met them in a way that clearly demonstrated um, the core of what we do at Native Child, the, the values and the worldview on which our agency is built. And I think that is a very concrete example of how the teaching and support that I received from my mom, but also many other Indigenous elders and knowledge keepers uh, throughout the years. Um, really impacts the work that I do uh, at Native Child. Well, and it's that rock that's, you know, bouncing in your pocket going, just grab a hold of this! Yeah, <laughs> it's the grandfather yeah. saying, come on, buddy! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How right. incredible. That is so, so, so important. You just pulled it right out of the noise. And right into the heart of the matter. Mm -hmm. Wow. You have a way of doing that. That I just, <laughs> I, I, you know, now let's talk about that, that black bear jumping on you and what kind of wisdom that you have from pushing into that to, to having that, that leaning in and getting that emotional courage to go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna reframe. I'm gonna look at this. I'm gonna ask this dream why it's here. Mm -hmm. Instead of running away, you moved in. And just like your mom, just like your ancestors that have gone before you, this is powerful stuff. And mm -hmm. what you are giving and imparting every day to other people is the same thing. Come on. Yeah. Get in there. Let's go. This is what we're here for. Ah, oh, this yeah. is good work. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I found out that, and, you know, one of the things that we do say is that, you know, uh, dreams are alive, right? And uh, you can always revisit a dream at any time. And dreams grow as the dreamer grows. And, um, mm -hmm. and so I've been able to revisit that dream at different points throughout my life. And definitely, you know, as Métis people, we don't traditionally have clans, but um, was actually adopted into uh, the Bear family at Pegasus First Nation, Bears being a last name, and did receive a clan as a Bear clan. So I definitely, you know, that's been a, a connection for me that has supported me um, for really, you know, throughout life. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and and the road that has led you here, that's really cool. This yeah. is really like the fact that you said something like, I've tried to do other things, but I keep coming back over here. That's the heart of the matter, and, and that's something worth paying attention to. What would you say to someone who is in your situation who goes, I keep landing at this spot, and there's, I try to go other places, and it's not, I'm not able to walk away. What would you say to that woman or man or young child or teenager? What would you say to them? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't thought about it. And I guess the spirit moves us in particular ways, and sometimes we're just destined to do things, right? And I, I, I got, I kept getting pulled back. At a certain time, you just have to sit with it, and again, revisit that embodied place, and and really see what's there, uh, because you may have a calling. There may be something that you're meant to do, right? Yeah. And for you, you know what you are meant to do when did you get that rock by the way like when did that happen for you like when did it kind of twig for you okay this is a is it is it a talisman what like you know what I mean yeah no I think like I initially thought that up as a teaching exercise when I was developing the um the cultural, the indigenous cultural competency training for the huh. city of Toronto. Right. And so I just started carrying a rock around with me in my pocket because so often I was in the classroom teaching and it seemed to be something that people felt powerful and helped them understand the difference. You know, and after that scenario with that gentleman who was so upset at Native Child, I mean, every day since then, I've had a rock in my in my uh, blazer pocket when I go to work. I mean, my wife complains all the time because there's rocks all over the house. And I'm saying, well, no, they're not. There aren't rocks all over the house. There's grandfathers. I need to, I need to throw my work. Um, and so, you know, and I, I, I literally, uh, you know, have a little group of rocks when I'm, you know, when I'm picking my blazer, I'm also picking my rock for the day. And um, I think it's just... It's become a tool that I've used on a daily basis to support the work that I do. Um, and a lot of the, f- the stuff that we focus on in Indigenous Tools for Living, there's a number of exercises that we do with rocks, whether it's one or many that people can use for healing and prioritizing and all sorts of stuff. But um, they're powerful. Listen, thank you so much for coming. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, yeah. It's just awesome. I am so privileged to have this conversation with you. It's been very... Uh, I won't tell you all the ways that it just changed my life, but you gave me some really beautiful um, moments here. Thank you, thank you for doing what you've done and uh, and sharing your your journey and what you do with other people. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All right, see you. Bye. Bye.